Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. People stared as the group of chattering men moved through Union Station. It wasn't unusual to see men talking and traveling together, of course. And since it was 1933, it wasn't even unusual to notice that one of those men was in handcuffs. That's how prisoners of the era were escorted to and from jail, after all. But what struck the onlooking passengers was that this prisoner apparently required seven guards. Seven? Who was this man? What could the officers possibly expect that might require seven armed guards? The gadflies soon got their answer when the group moved outside and piled into a car waiting for them at the bottom of the entrance steps. Gunmen opened fire from different directions, all focused on the Chevrolet. After just 30 seconds of gunfire, four of the law enforcement officers were dead, and so was the prisoner. The three who survived, though not without injury, aided the investigation of the FBI to find out who had perpetrated what would soon become known as the Kansas City Massacre. Last episode, we talked about the infamous duo Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. The climax of that story occurred in 1934 when the pair was gunned down inside their car by law enforcement officers lying in wait. That was the year after the incident we'll talk about today, though some of the players will overlap, as will certainly the historical context of the era. The desperation of the Great Depression and the utter lawlessness sparked by the previous decade's prohibition. But make no mistake, The repercussions of this wild tale had lasting ripple effects all their own. From a newscast earlier this year. Ninety years ago Saturday, Union Station was at the center of an incident that would shape law enforcement for the next generation. The gunfire that erupted this June day in Union Station forever changed how American law enforcement fought crime. Union Station in Kansas City, Missouri, opened its doors on October 30th, 1914, replacing the old Union Depot from 1878. After the old Union Depot flooded during heavy rains in 1903, railway executives made the decision to build another, larger station on higher ground. The Kansas City Terminal Railway was a joint operation of several different railroad companies. The new station was huge, some 850,000 square feet, with 10 stories and 900 rooms per USA Today. It still stands today, with the Grand Hall standing a jaw-dropping 95 feet high, with three chandeliers and a six-foot-tall clock hanging from the ceiling. Another waiting room, appropriately called the North Waiting Hall, can hold as many as 10,000 people. 
By the second decade of the 20th century, Kansas City had grown into a hub for both freight and passenger rail cars, and this much larger station answered a desperate need. The man at the center of today's story, the man who needed seven guards, was Frank Nash, notorious bank robber. By the time of his ill-fated depot visit, he was well-known to much of the country, from Decades TV. Nash had been on the run after escaping prison three years earlier. Before we get into that, though, let's back up. Nash was born in 1887 in Indiana. He spent his childhood moving around Arkansas and Oklahoma as his father launched hotels in several southern towns. Nash's first jobs were working at his father's hotels, and in 1904, he joined the Army and served for three years. But he wasn't much for the straight and narrow. According to the Hobart, Oklahoma Republican, Nash's first arrest came in 1910 when he was picked up in Comanche County, Oklahoma, for burglary. Less than a year later, he was charged again with burglary after breaking into multiple stores in Gatiba, Oklahoma. He carried out these robberies with two other men, Guy Huber and Nolly Humpy Wartman, but Wartman was the one to bring attention to their trio. An article published in the Gatibo Gazette describes how, initially, only Wartman was convicted as a safe-cracking tool was found at the crime scene. Bitter at being the only one facing prison, he gave up the names of Huber and Nash, but both were acquitted due to a technicality. Testifying secured Wartman's release, but his former friends weren't thrilled that he'd ratted on them, and they held a grudge. Wartman spent the next two years hiding out in Texas. Maybe he thought two years would be enough time for Huber and Nash to forget him, but that wasn't the case. Wartman finally returned home to Hobart to find that his former friends were waiting for him. I don't know what kind of reunion he was expecting, but here's how it went down, according to the Hobart Republican. Huber and Nash somehow convinced Wartman to accompany them to a secluded spot and shot him at close range with a 32 or 38 caliber pistol, the ball entering the right temple and coming out over the left eye. But guess what? He survived. Well, at least for a bit. Conscious but blind, Wartman told police who shot him, then lingered in pain until he finally died a few weeks later. Both Huber and Nash received life sentences for his murder in May and August 1913, respectively. Five years into his sentence, Nash convinced the warden he wanted to join the U.S. military to fight in World War I. And it worked. He got his sentence shortened. Now, before you roll your eyes at what a dummy that warden was, get this. Nash actually kept his word and joined the army to fight in France. He spent a few months there before the war ended with a ceasefire in November 1918. And then, after mustering out of the army, Nash went straight back to criming. One bit of law-breaking that stood out was the time in 1920 he used explosives to commit a burglary of a safe. In short, this is also called safe-cracking, though not the cool ear-to-the-safe version you see in most movies. Maybe he would have gotten away with that type. Not so this brute-force attempt. Convicted of the burglary and then sentenced to 25 years in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, Nash became a trustee or a person with additional privileges in the prison. 
Obtaining this lofty position also meant that Nash's sentence was reduced to a mere five years, though he managed to get even that cut shorter. He was released a few days after Christmas 1922, basically after spending about two years behind bars, only to join a gang of bank robbers led by Al Spencer. In August 1923, the Spencer gang robbed a mail train, a federal crime. Escaping before the FBI came knocking, Nash fled south all the way to Juarez, Mexico. Even though there were reports that he already had a wife back in Hobart, he married a woman in Mexico, but it's possible he was planning to change the date on the marriage certificate to show any American law enforcement that he was really in Mexico when that train was robbed. You know, the old, I couldn't have robbed that train because I was busy getting married alibi. This didn't work. As soon as he stepped a tentative toe back in the U.S., he was arrested and later sentenced to yet another 25-year sentence, but this time at the federal pen in Leavenworth. Just like last time, Nash worked his way into a trusted position, the chef for the deputy warden and a general handyman to fix things around the prison. By the fall of 1930, he was trusted enough to be sent on errands outside of the prison. On October 19th, he walked out of the prison gates with no intention of ever looking back. After Nash waltzed out of Leavenworth in 1930, he settled in Chicago, where he met his third and final wife, Frances Luce. Frances, a single mother who worked in a bar, seemingly wasn't aware of you know, the other two wives Nash supposedly already had. Anyway, at this point, the U.S. Bureau of Investigation, that's what it technically still was called until it later became the FBI, was helmed by J. Edgar Hoover. He said hard-nosed things like, We must not for a moment lose sight of our goal. Hoover had been in charge of the Bureau since 1924 and had been revolutionizing it ever since. But at this point, in the early 1930s, it was still very much an agency in transition. Not only did the agency not have the authority to carry firearms, but also had no authority to even make arrests. They could make a citizen's arrest, but then had to call a U.S. marshal or local police officer. Hoover was working to change all that, and Nash's escape helped give him the figurative ammo to do so the FBI launched a massive manhunt to find the escaped bank robber. Agents searched throughout the U.S. and even Canada with no luck. One massive obstacle was, ironically, a cash reward offered by Hoover for information leading to Nash's capture. Hoover was embarrassed by Nash's escape and blamed, quote, bleeding hearts and social reformers, end quote, that ran American prisons. He wanted Nash caught quickly, hence his decision to offer money for his capture, but that backfired spectacularly because money-hungry tipsters flooded the agency with bogus sightings and information. Most were just scammers looking for a score or, even worse, punks happy to send the feds on a wild goose chase. A year after his escape, Nash tempted fate by helping in the escape of seven prisoners from the very same prison he ran from, Leavenworth. Now spurred on by Nash's audacity, agents arrested two known associates, Francis Keating and Thomas Holden, who revealed to the FBI that Nash was under the protection of powerful gangsters in Arkansas. 
That might not seem like a likely spot for mobster heads nowadays, but back in the day, it definitely had some appeal. Hot Springs, Arkansas in particular, became a popular vacation spot, especially for the pseudo-health conscious, which some gangsters were because, you know, they could afford to be. While most of the country was mired in poverty, gangsters could afford things like vacations, and given their life-threatening daily gigs, they didn't mind splurging on a bit of me time. Many believed the springs had healing properties, luring folks from all over to swim in and drink from its magical waters. Among its fans were Al Capone, who was spotted regularly walking down the streets by locals. Capone and other mobsters liked more than the agua, though. They also liked that some politicians, including Mayor Leo Patrick McLaughlin, promised to make the place a quote-unquote open city, meaning that city officials would look the other way to avert their attention from any illegal shenanigans. In the decade or so leading up to World War II, the town had more than a, quote, dozen high-end casinos, brothels, racetracks, pool halls, end quote. Mobsters not drawn to the hot springs did find themselves interested in the town's several baseball teams that used the place for spring training and, better yet, off-track betting. After arriving in Arkansas, Nash and Francis, his bride, officially tied the knot. But their union would not end in a happily ever after. FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover and other federal officials desperately wanted noted criminal and prison escapee Frank Nash caught for making a mockery of the fledgling agency. Come summer of 1933, Hoover had been searching for Nash for about three years, and he was getting impatient. He concocted a plan. On June 16, 1933, federal agents Joe Lackey and Frank Smith were in Hot Springs, Arkansas, accompanied by Otto Reed, chief of police in McAllister, Oklahoma. This is from a documentary called Shooting Back in Time, the Kansas City Union Station Massacre. It was mid-morning, and operating on a tip, the officers seized Frank Nash at the White Front Cigar Store, owned by gambler Dick Galatis. As Nash was being spirited away by the officers, Agent Smith tugged lightly at Nash's toupee, and it came off. Hoover's G-men weren't exactly known for their subtlety. Once the feds arrested Nash, they drove him to Fort Smith, Arkansas, more than 100 miles away. That's where they waited at the station for their train, the 8.30 p.m. Missouri Pacific, bound for Kansas City, Missouri. With Nash and Cuffs and Special Agent in Charge, R.E. Vetterly, meeting them in Union Station, the lawmen rested as the train cut through the night. Of course, while they were on their way to Missouri, Nash's friends in Hot Springs learned of his arrest. Francis Luce, now Mrs. Nash, called acquaintances in Chicago, who in turn called Nash's criminal friends. From the same documentary. His wife, Frances, became hysterical, and Dick Galatis started making phone calls and eventually learned that the officers were taking Nash on the train out of Fort Smith to Kansas City. The FBI's goal was to get Nash back to Leavenworth. A reporter happened to be in the Fort Smith train station and talked to the agents, learning about Nash and his arrest. According to Joe Urschel's book, The Year of Fear, Machine Gun Kelly, and the Manhunt that Changed the Nation, the reporter hurried to a payphone to dictate the article forming in his head. 
Within hours, it had popped up on the Associated Press wires and was being published in Midwest papers. Raising the alarm across state lines, mob bosses Dick Galatis, Herbert Farmer, Doc Lewis Stachy, and Frank B. Malloy formulated a plan to rescue Nash from the FBI. Contacting their allies in Kansas City, they learned when Nash's train would arrive and task Vern Miller to lead the rescue. Vern Miller was an interesting fellow. His parents had divorced when he was young, leaving him on his own from an early age, according to an article in South Dakota Magazine. He dropped out of school at just 10 years old, and then moved in 1914 to a town called Huron, where he became a mechanic. Two years after that, he joined the army and served on the Mexican border before getting married back in Huron the next year. Just a month after his nuptials, he was recalled to serve during World War I, landing in France with the 164th Infantry on April 17, 1918. He was a genuine war hero. A decorated marksman and sniper wounded twice in battle, he was a recipient of the French Croix de Guerre Award for Bravery. After returning from Europe, Miller joined the Huron Police Force. One newspaper editor wrote of his arrival, quote, Lawbreakers had better watch out if they want to keep their health, end quote. So far, you're probably noticing that Miller's origin story seems night and day from Nash's, right? I mean, he was a lawman, after all. He even became the sheriff of Beetle County. But then things changed. He claimed he got bored after two years on the job. Instead of, say, finding a new gig, he turned to crime, embezzling some $2,600 from county coffers and landing himself in Hoover's crosshairs. Miller was on the lam for a little more than a year before he was caught and convicted for theft. After this stumble, his downward turn continued as his addiction to drugs and alcohol took hold of him. As the 1930s dawned, Vern Miller was known around the Midwest as a hired gun. Fellow gangsters joked that, even with his addiction issues, he could sign his name with a Tommy gun. He had worked a few jobs with Nash and now was willing to help in the rescue plan. Miller used Malloy's bar in Kansas City to coordinate additional gunmen. Now, there's no question that Miller was among those dispatched to Union Station when word spread that Nash was passing through there. But sources differ on another point whether or not Charles Pretty Boy Floyd was involved as well. It has been rumored that Adam Ricchetti was a part of the plot, and he was one of Floyd's closest companions. Now, Pretty Boy Floyd is arguably the most infamous person in this story, which is kind of funny since we're not totally sure he was actually involved. In the same tier as John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, and Al Capone, Floyd was born in Georgia in 1904, making him just shy of 30 in 1933. As a teenager, he had enough of the drudgery of farm life and became involved in bootlegging operations. Mentored by John Callahan, a Midwest fence, Floyd eventually landed in Oklahoma and married a woman named Ruby Hardgrave. Quickly bored, he abandoned his family to continue his life of crime. In addition to his many bank robberies, Floyd was also responsible for the deaths of at least six people. From Capone to Dillinger to Floyd, crime was winning. The G-Men were losing, 
and a young J. Edgar Hoover had had enough. Interestingly, though, Hoover's sentiment wasn't universally shared. I mean, there's a reason Capone and Dillinger and Floyd, and of course Nash, managed to evade capture for so long. Some of these guys commanded huge respect because during their hijinks, they engaged in supposed Robin Hood behavior. Floyd, for example, was said to rip up or steal mortgages during his crimes. Back then, if the bank couldn't find the paperwork, they couldn't foreclose on a property. He would also use the stolen money to buy food for a community. Anyway, around the time of Nash's arrest, Floyd and Ricchetti, also known as Floyd's alcoholic sidekick, found themselves in Polk County, Missouri. Floyd and Rochetti were at the Bitzer Chevrolet car dealership in Bolivar, where Rochetti's brother Joe, a mechanic, was working on the most recent car Floyd had stolen. It so happened that the county sheriff strolled in for a cup of coffee and was taken hostage for safe passage by Floyd and Rochetti. Out on the cat roads of Missouri, they flagged down Walter Griffith, commandeered his car, and the foursome weaved their way to Kansas City. Now, that makes it sound like Floyd and Ricchetti were just near Kansas City by pure chance around the time Nash was being escorted through Union Station by seven police officers. And it's likely true. The reason Floyd has forever been tied to the massacre is because one eyewitness told police after the shooting that he recognized Floyd as one of the men running away from the scene. Hoover was never one to wait for legally obtained evidence, and this was enough for him to name Floyd public enemy number one, which makes this next part of my storytelling a little confusing. Normally, I would cite something like an FBI report with an air of authority, but in this case, the FBI report is suspect because Hoover wasn't always on the up and up, and we know now today that he had a bad habit of retrofitting his reports to justify whatever the hell he wanted to justify. With that in mind, here's what the FBI report said happened the day after Nash's arrest. On October 20th, Floyd and Ricchetti's car broke down as they and their girlfriends fled. Spotted hiding in the woods while the women went to find a tow truck, Ricchetti was arrested, but Floyd managed to escape. He survived two days without Ricchetti, until he was killed in East Liverpool, Ohio, by FBI agents. Many historians agree that it is unlikely that either participated in the massacre, but the official FBI site still has both arriving at Union Station with Vern Miller in the early morning of June 17th. According to the FBI report, the three arrived early that morning to take their positions before Nash's train arrived. Scheduled to arrive in Kansas City at 7.15 a.m., the train pulled into the station right on time. Agent Lackey stepped off the train and onto the platform to meet Special Agent Vetterly and to give a situation report. Joining Vertelli were two FBI agents, Catherine Smith, and two Kansas City police deputies named Hermanson and Grooms. There was also a chief named Reed on site. While talking, the four additional men kept their heads on a swivel, looking for any sign of danger. Vetterly told Lackey that he had brought two cars to the station and they were parked as close to the door as possible. With all involved finally on the platform, they walked into the station. 
Per the report, Bozlaki and McAllister Police Chief Reed carried loaded shotguns while the others had their pistols ready. Stepping outside, the officers paused to look for anything suspicious. Seeing nothing out of the ordinary, they walked to Caffrey's Chevy, parked at the curb. Caffrey unlocked the right door. There was only one door, and Nash began to crawl into the back seat. But Caffrey stopped him, telling him instead to sit in the front seat. Agents Lackey and Smith sat in the back along with Chief Reed. Shutting the passenger door, Caffrey walked to the driver's side where Special Agent Betterly and Officers Hermanson and Grooms were waiting for him. Lackey noticed a green Plymouth six feet away. Seeing two men run from behind the car, he saw they were both armed and there was at least one machine gun. Before he could alert the others, one of the gunmen shouted, Up! Up! According to the official FBI page on the massacre, Vetterly, who was still standing outside the car, then heard a voice yell, Let him have it! On that command, bullets flew at them from multiple gunmen only feet away from the car. Charles Moore, a taxi driver waiting outside for a fare, told reporters that his first impression was that the noise was fireworks. It wasn't until he saw a woman taking cover behind a parked car that he realized he was in the middle of a gun battle. Police officers Hermanson and Grooms fell to the pavement, killed instantly in the assault. Standing next to the officers, Special Agent Betterly dropped down next to them, wounded in the arm. As he, quote, scrambled to the left side of the car to join Agent Caffrey, he saw Caffrey fall to the ground, end quote. He'd been killed by gunshots to the head. Inside the car, Chief Reed was killed, and so was the man at the center of all this, the man who was supposed to be freed by this ambush, Frank Nash. It was a botched attempt to free bank robber Frank Nash again, but ended up killing him, two Kansas City police officers, a federal agent, and a police chief from Oklahoma. The pictures we have today show it was in broad daylight in the parking lot of one of the busiest places in Kansas City. After the bullets stopped, the assailants ran to the car to look inside, and seeing everyone slumped down, one shooter said, quote, they're all dead. Let's get out of here, end quote. Of the eight men who walked out of the Kansas City Union Station, only three survived the 32nd onslaught. Agent Smith and Lackey managed to survive by slumping forward and playing dead. Even so, Lackey was shot three times and was in serious condition. Smith was the luckiest of all, emerging from the car without a scratch. Betterly had a gunshot wound in his arm, but was otherwise okay. The three couldn't remember if there were three or four gunmen, but all agreed on the timeline of events. The Bartlesville Examiner from Oklahoma reported in their evening edition on the 17th that law enforcement believed there were four shooters. But according to an AP story published in the same edition, just not on the front page, one witness said they saw only two, while another reported they saw shots coming from the insides of two different cars. After losing two agents and their fugitive, the FBI launched a massive manhunt for the supposed assailants. Before the morning of the massacre was over, Hoover had created a task force to hunt for Ricchetti and Floyd, filling it with veteran agents like Gus Buster Jones. 
Jones, who was described in The Year of Fear as a hard-drinking, hard-charging, gun-toting Western cowboy, arrived in Kansas City that afternoon, and his first task was to figure out his second task. With no real evidence at the crime scene, he had to rely on witness statements and his skill set. Jones's investigation revealed that Vern Miller had called Frank Nash's wife, Frances, several times after Nash's arrest in Arkansas. Agents took Frances Nash into custody for, quote-unquote, intense interrogation, after which she implicated Vern Miller. She said she didn't know where he was headed, but it was enough to send leading agents to search his home in Kansas City. There, they found the remnants of a dinner Miller supposedly had with Ricchetti and Floyd, including a beer bottle, reportedly with Ricchetti's fingerprints. This would be the clue touted by the FBI that cemented the link between Ricchetti, Floyd, and the Union Station shooting. Per the FBI report, the three separated as soon as possible after the shooting. Joined by a girlfriend, Vivian Mathias, Miller first stopped in Chicago two days later before heading to New York. Sometime before Halloween 1933, the FBI had gathered evidence suggesting that he and Mathias were living in an apartment together. Agents set a trap to capture him, but on October 31st, he escaped. Mathias, left behind, was charged with harboring and concealing Miller. Back at square one, agents continued their search for another four weeks. On November 29th, Miller's body was found in a ditch a few miles from Detroit. He had been beaten and strangled in retaliation for the shooting of a mobster in Newark the last time Miller was in New Jersey. In the year and a half after the massacre, Floyd and Ricchetti were hunted by various law enforcement agencies. Captain Thomas Higgins, the Kansas City chief of detectives, had been tracking Floyd for four years and didn't buy that Floyd was part of the Casey massacre, saying it wasn't his style. Perhaps Floyd was aware of Higgins's doubt because he sent Higgins a postcard that read, quote, Dear Sirs, I, Charles Floyd, want it made known that I did not participate in the massacre of officers at Kansas City, end quote. Agent Jones also doubted Floyd's involvement, citing his preference for working alone and being an outlier. But Jackson County Sheriff Thomas Bash continued to push the Floyd Ricchetti Miller theory. To Bash, the fact that the criminals had arrived in the city the night before proved they had taken part in the shooting. As the sheriff interviewed witnesses, he was further convinced by an eyewitness who supposedly ID'd Floyd, after which newspapers nationwide repeatedly put Floyd squarely at the center of the crime. After leaving Kansas City, Floyd and Ricchetti made their way to Toledo, Ohio. While there, they met a pair of sisters with whom they traveled to Buffalo and rented an apartment under assumed names. To avoid scrutiny, they paired off and pretended to be married couples, Mr. and Mrs. George Sanders and Mr. and Mrs. Ed Brennan. Even with this precaution, other residents in the building thought them very mysterious because they didn't leave the apartment except to get supplies. After a year in Buffalo, the couples decided to return to Oklahoma, leaving the city on October 20th, 1934. Their plan to continue running soon hit an obstacle, a telephone pole. As in, outside of Wellsville, Ohio, Floyd skidded the car into one. 
While the manhunt was still massive, the men took their weapons out of the car and hid while the two sisters took the car to a mechanic for repairs. Residents near the accident site called the police chief in Wellsville, a guy named J.H. Fultz, to report two suspicious-looking men. When he responded to the calls, he found Ricchetti and Floyd resting in a small wooded area. Trying to arrest them peacefully, Fultz ended up having a shootout with the men before Ricchetti ran out of bullets. Fultz arrested Ricchetti, but Floyd escaped, though the chief thought he may have injured him in the gun battle. Now more than 18 months after the massacre, the manhunt for Floyd focused on eastern Ohio. Agents and law enforcement covered the countryside, interviewing anyone who may have seen anything, including doctors and hospital staff, just in case he had been wounded and was seeking treatment. A team led by FBI agent Melvin Purvis was tasked with searching and patrolling the town of East Liverpool. While on patrol, the eight officers, four agents and four local authorities, spotted a suspicious car sneaking out from behind a corn crib. That's an outbuilding that holds grains. It had only been two days since the shootout in Wellsville, and the teams were stopping all cars to question everyone. Getting closer to the corn crib, the car returned to its more hidden position, but the officers still moved forward. According to the FBI, the man who jumped out of the car with a 45 caliber automatic pistol in his hand was, quote, immediately recognized as Floyd, end quote. They took the gun from him and the other one hidden in his belt as he said, I'm done for, you've hit me twice. The FBI report does not detail that they opened fire on Floyd, but they must have fired at least twice to have wounded him. Two agents returned to their car to radio for an ambulance, but Floyd died 15 minutes after being shot. The manhunt was officially over. Floyd's remains were on their way back to Oklahoma for burial. Taken back to Kansas City, Ricchetti was indicted on March 1, 1935, by a Jackson County grand jury on four counts of murder for the Kansas City Massacre. His trial began on June 10th, and a week later, the jury returned a guilty verdict with a recommendation for the death penalty. Obviously, trying to avoid the gallows, Ricchetti's lawyer tried everything he could, including appealing the initial conviction, and when that didn't work, alleging Ricchetti was insane. Over the summer of 1938, his conviction was upheld by the Missouri Supreme Court, and he was declared to be sane. Ricchetti was executed in the gas chamber at the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City on October 7, 1938. Kansas City also prosecuted four men for organizing the shooting. Dick Galatis, Herbert Farmer, Doc Lewis Stachy, and Frank Malloy, the same crew who had arranged for Vern Miller to come to Union Station, were indicted by a grand jury. On January 4, 1935, they were convicted of conspiracy to cause the escape of a federal prisoner from the custody of the U.S. This carried a sentence of two years in a federal prison and a fine of $10,000, which is nearly a quarter of a million dollars in today's money. In the decades since the massacre, speculation about who the shooters really were has captivated law enforcement and Kansas City residents. According to author Urschel, one possibility was another gangster altogether named George Kelly, another bank robber, 
Kelly was often mistaken for Floyd, both matching the era's definition of handsome. Kelly had also served time with Floyd while at Leavenworth, opening up the possibility that Kelly may have learned some tactics from Floyd. Now, going in a different direction, a guy named Blackie Audette, another Kansas City mobster, said he not only knew it wasn't Ricchetti and Floyd who helped Vern Miller in the massacre, but he said he knew the true identities of the shooters. Audette's 1954 memoir, Rap Sheet, named Maurice Denning and Solly Wiseman as the two who joined Vern on June 17th. On multiple occasions, he claimed to have been less than 50 yards away from the gunmen and said he could easily see their faces. While the men Audette named were not captured by the FBI, he was sure the Kansas City mob hunted down and killed the men involved because they botched the job. Regardless of what exactly happened in this case, though, its impact is undeniable. As Decades TV put it, That all changed after the Kansas City Massacre. A special agent must be a good marksman and have the courage to shoot it out with the most venomous of public enemies. Hoover demanded an extension of powers for his bureau. And a year later, Congress increased the agency's jurisdiction gave agents the power of arrest and the authority to carry firearms at all times. Shortly after, the agency was renamed the Federal Bureau of Investigation. With the FBI now armed with Thompson submachine guns, nicknamed the Tommy Gun, rifles and pistols, crime in America was about to meet its match. Nineteen thirty-four proved to be the beginning of the end for the golden age of gangsters. Within that one year, law enforcement killed not only Floyd, but also George Babyface Nelson, John Dillinger, and Bonnie and Clyde. They still loom large in American history, Americans drawn to the excitement of the era. But in the telling of the stories, the names of those killed often fall by the wayside. The Kansas City Police Memorial has the men killed on June 17, 1933, listed on their fallen officers page. Detective William J. Grooms, 29 years old, dead of a gunshot wound to the chest. He was survived by his wife, Myrtle. Detective Frank Hermanson, 42, a Swedish immigrant, killed by a bullet to the head, survived by his wife, Monty. Police Chief Orrin Henry Otto Reed, 49, also killed by a gunshot to the head. He was survived by wife Phoebe and was transported back to Oklahoma for burial. FBI agent Raymond Caffrey was 31 and pronounced dead at the Kansas City General Hospital due to a gunshot wound to the head. Like the others, Caffrey was survived by his wife, though no name is listed. They joined dozens of others killed by gangsters during their heyday of the Great Depression. Gangsters who for better or for worse, helped to usher in a new, more powerful Federal Bureau of Investigation. To research this story, Jen Erdman read a few books cited throughout the script, tapped the Library of Congress, and read contemporary news reports. 
I, meanwhile, dove through a bevy of always fascinating Kansas City mobster sources. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs> 